Culture is what people do and why. And it's very influenced uh, from the leadership. It can only really emanate from the leadership, what they tolerate and what they don't tolerate. Um, so in the book, we talk about how to diagnose a company's culture and pick a quality improvement methodology, which will go with the grain of that culture. No process improvement sticks unless you engage people's minds and hearts as well as their hands to make it happen. W. Edwards Deming said, drive fear out of the workplace. If people think that by improving their process, they're taking their or someone else's job away, they don't do it. So the first step is you have to assure them you're not going to be let go from making us better. And yet so few companies are willing to do that, to make that ironclad guarantee. So you will never have the hearts and minds of the person as long as they feel like if I do make this change, my best friend on that line is going to go home and never come back. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast, like what we're doing, and leave a comment. Go where the biggest, most complicated problem is. Because if you're a problem junkie, if you like to solve big, complicated things, you're going to learn the most and have the most impact by always running into the building that the smoke is pouring out of. It's a very unnatural thing. Most people prefer a little more comfortable life and stay away from those things. And they're known as sane people. But for quality people, we, we love that. We love the smell of smoke. We love to strap on the oxygen tank and the mask and get in there and, and do something. Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, improvement nerds. We've got a lot of work to do. Nerds, this is Tom. I am so excited to be coming back and hosting another great episode for you all with a special guest. We have Jeff Vieira, who is someone that uh, I've been introduced to through another podcast guest. So uh, thanks to Emily Bopp with Enable Solutions, I had the great pleasure of meeting Jeff. And in our planning call, Jeff and I uh, nerded out for probably minutes. Like it, it got really nerdy 
and I walked away with two note, two pages of notes for the things that uh, he helped me to understand and become even more excited about. So I'm I'm pumped up to have him on in the episode. I've not got his book yet. Um, I've tried, and everywhere I've looked, Jeff, I've not been very successful. I think right after you and I called, I looked on Amazon, and it was already sold out. So that's probably a good problem to have in your but it's a prob- bad problem to have on my, my side of things because I really want the book. Uh, but, I, you know, in some ways, having these conversations with you, it's like, what, what better way to experience what the book's all about than to talk to the author? So thanks for coming on to the show, and welcome to The Improvement. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, just put in an unsolicited plug for Emily and uh, Dane. Uh, Enable is a fantastic uh, company, and they really do go out of their way to try and help people, especially in these unprecedented times. Uh, so could not be uh, more excited about the work that they're doing uh, and uh, hope that uh, it continues to be fruitful for them. I Thank you. Yeah, they are uh, stamped has improvement nerds and I had fun on their episode and once you this is a huge community of individuals who get nerded out about making things better and providing energy and pouring their passion into uh, helping organizations along the way in their improvement journey but also individuals who are trying to embark on an improvement journey whether they're wanting to study to be a project manager or they want to blog on a topic. I found that this community of people, um, it's probably existed for a long time, and I'm I'm grateful that I found a way to access it. And I've been calling people improvement nerds, and just getting this like overwhelming response, like yes, yeah, I'm an improvement nerd, and I'm like I love that. I am too, and I hit it for way too long. Like I kind of felt like nerding out about transformation. Um, could cause like a riff like no no people who are all about change they don't belong here like just stay quiet and let's just you know keep things the same and I was I was too quiet and now that I'm talking about it I'm meeting tons of people who are like oh yeah like stand on the mountaintops and let's shout it so I'm glad that you're that Emily and Dane are those people and I'm glad that you're that person too and I hope that our audience as they listen to these episodes that they it fills their cup and it gives them the energy that they need to make change. Excellent. You know, it's it's so hard when you're in the process improvement space, you're doing super difficult things. Uh, you're trying to get people to change and we don't like to change. You're trying to find solutions to problems, which are often really complicated and require a great deal of technical skill to really get to the bottom of them. And nobody likes the math. So to live at that intersection all the time, trying to get your colleagues to change, trying to get them to uh, understand why we need to change, why this change is the one that's going to make it happen, and then actually turn right around and implement it. Uh, It takes a really rare uh, type of person who's willing to climb that mountain day in and day out. And um, I couldn't have said it a better way. I think that's a great uh, way to summarize how people that are excited about improvement have to interact with the world because it's a delicate dance. Like you can be overexcited and cause individuals to resist more. Um, So in some ways you want to, as a change agent, yeah, like harness that energy and the excitement that you have, but you've got to find a way to get other people excited too. 
and that is that can feel like a battle it like you said it sometimes feels like climbing the mountain day in and day out and you just got to grind it out and know that um being steadfast and seeing the big picture is the best way to have resolve when you're trying to institute change is that it's small tiny individual changes that happen that add up to big transformative change and you just gotta let those seeds um, grow and eventually you'll have a big harvest yeah well you have to have fertile ground too because um the genesis of the book came about uh because uh i had a project that we were working on where we were transforming a supply chain company so we were taking a look at where they had their distribution centers, what inventory they carried in them, how they serviced them, how they transported goods in between. And it was very necessary because of the price pressure they were under. So knowing this was gonna be a big challenge, uh, we determined at the outset, hey, we're gonna do this right. We brought in a couple of consultants to help us out with some of the technical aspects of supply chain optimization and to make sure we're taking advantage of the latest tools. And we put together a team um, that was truly cross-functional. We had people from all levels of the organization. Uh, it was fully transparent, fully collaborative. Uh, it was uh, very innovative. And the idea was that at the end of this process, all of us would be just standing together, shoulder to shoulder saying, this is the change we need. We knew it would be a big change, but we felt like if everybody here is able to go out and be ambassadors for that change, we're gonna be successful. We come into the leadership team. So after all this coordination where basically everyone at the lower levels knew all about this first, we come back to the leadership team, pitch the, the change. It's sold in the room. And the CEO even said, look, we would do this if it, even if it didn't save us money simply because it aligned so well with our strategy. I left that room walking on air. I felt like my career had actually accomplished something. Uh, they wanted to move immediately into implementation. So literally I went out of that meeting and then had to start putting together the Gantt charts and start figuring out who was gonna do what. Uh, two weeks later to the day, we get called into a meeting with two of the leadership team execs. And one of them is saying he's not gonna sign up for it. Now he's been part of the effort. His people have been part on the effort. Everyone signed off on it. Uh, he doesn't wanna play. Uh, my executive uh, said, well, if you're not gonna play, I'm not gonna play. And they killed it stone dead. So from the peak, the summit, uh, to getting kicked off the mountaintop <laughs> was about a two-week period for me and deeply depressing, especially because in the wake of it, I keep thinking, well, what is it? What could I have done differently? What could the team have done differently? How, how do we avoid it? And you come to realize that we did everything they say you're supposed to do. We had top-down leadership buy-in. We had uh, the buy-in from the people that were actually going to be impacted by the change. We had a terrific burning platform that was undeniable great solution. Uh, and it just didn't matter. And the reason it just didn't matter was because we ran up against the grain of the culture of that company, mm -hmm. uh, which a former CEO referred to as 135 years unmarred by progress. Any type of change was going to be resisted because it required everybody fully 
to be 100% let's do it at all times. Or they would do just what those execs did. If you're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Now, it doesn't matter that what we were talking about was actually saving the company from burning to the ground. And they're standing there with buckets saying, if you're not going to throw that bucket of water on it, I'm not going to throw the bucket of water. It makes no sense in the larger picture, but in the culture of that company, that's what made sense. And because we didn't get ahead of that and make sure there was fertile ground for the change we were going to be making, that initiative failed and it cost the company a lot. Uh, So it's so important as process improvement professionals we're going to keep running up against that until we deal with the fact that culture is upstream of process. Culture stems from leadership. And if you don't address leadership and culture before a major initiative, you are setting yourselves up to fail no matter how brilliant it is. I'm sure individuals listening to that experience that you've had are shaking their heads saying, I've been there too. And man, I underestimated the importance of culture. I thought we have a good buy-in. We have some key stakeholders on board, early adopters, hopefully with their energy and them acting as ambassadors, we're going to get that critical mass and that buy-in we need. We've got good ideas. Those things, yes, they're critical, but if you forget the environment, the culture that exists as part of this effort to institute change, it it is going to fall apart. And I think a lot of individuals just hearing your experience, they've hit they've hit up against that wall too, in which culture was so ingrained and so strong, it had such a strong current that they weren't able to overcome it. And I think, you know, this episode talking about culture is gonna add a lot of value because oftentimes that's the missing piece of successful transformation is the cultural elements and understanding those and being able to influence those unfreeze them change them and and take them to a new place so i'm excited to be having this episode with you and before we dive into that you shared one professional experience i'm curious you probably have a lot of stories of of change that you've been a part of in your career how long have you been working in this space in transformation or process improvement give us a little bit of your background yeah, so uh, I've been in uh, the quality space for about 25 years. Uh, I was an Air Force officer as a graduate of the Air Force Academy. Um, I got into quality the same way every uh, junior Air Force officer gets in anything, which was an order came down from high. We had to do something with quality. And as the lowest ranking person, I was the one who had to do something with it. Um, but it, I, as we got into it, the initiative was called Quality Air Force back in the mid-90s. And um, really... Uh, really took to it. Uh, Here was a case where the military culture was viewed as being completely incompatible (laughs) with quality because number one, you're talking lives and deaths, it's wartime. Uh, It's got nothing to do with business and quality was very much viewed as a business thing, a management thing, not a wartime combat leadership kind of thing. However, uh, especially in the Air Force where our, our Uh, processes get very complicated uh, because of the amount of different aircraft that we service, the difference in the missions. Um, They they refer to it as our logistics tail is very long and uh, involved. And so as a logistics officer, we were butting up against this stuff all the time. 
uh, it was very natural to take a look and say, well, look, could some of this uh, work help us do our job better when we're fighting a war? Uh, when, I, when I took over my first flight over in Japan, we had the opportunity to apply that practically. And so uh, no sooner do I get off the plane than I'm told that uh, the flight I'm taking over is 10 miles of bad road. You got to fix it. This is horrible. Um, and so I knew enough about strategic planning at that point to realize, okay, it sounds like we don't have a real good feel for what it is we're supposed to be doing here. Let's take a look at, you know, at making sure everyone's driving towards the same objective, make sure we got the right people on board the right way to measure it and then take it from there. Um, and it was highly unusual at the time because uh, the expectation was you would just come in and tell people what to do. Uh, I knew nothing about the Air Force. I was 22 years old. And so uh, the idea that I was gonna come in and tell these people their job when I didn't even know their job, uh, that wasn't gonna work. Every year called the American Petroleum Institute Award where that honor is given. It had never been won by a small overseas base. So the vision felt a little bit like an impossibility at that point. Uh, but within a year, we won that award. And they, they specifically referenced the strategic plan we put in place as the reason they came out to look at us in the first place. Uh, and so from that point, myself and a number of people who were involved in that effort became quality lifers because it worked. We saw the transformation that happens when you empower people, when you have a shared objective, and when you measure your progress against that objective. So it was a demonstration in some ways for you that sold it. Did you find that prior to that experience, like this problem solving drive, this desire to make things better was kind of innate in you or were you more of, of the resisting type of, you know, so, some individuals on the change spectrum are like, because it's new and it's innovative, I'm willing to take the risk. So that's kind of like your early adopters. And then you have individuals maybe in that later majority where are watching things play out before they push their chips in. So for you, you know, was it like immediate, like you didn't, you would have done it even if it didn't have the demonstration because you already thought that way? Or were you more of like, I'm thinking this way now because I got the, it got results for me? Yeah, the, in, in my case, I, my personality is such that I'm always trying to find little ways to do things. So uh, it was natural. I was always getting trouble for it. My first job was as a, a stalker in a small grocery and they would have me come in on Saturdays and restock the shelves and it would take all day. Um, well, despite the fact I was getting paid, I didn't want to spend all day on a Saturday doing it. Mm -hmm. And so you would go downstairs and you would go hunt through this unorganized mass of stuff and find what you need and then pull it upstairs. And so I figured out um, that if I just rearranged everything downstairs to match the configuration upstairs, I could do it more quickly. And so I, I got out in about two hours one day, the uh, grocer couldn't believe it nor could he believe why I would ever want to do that because I was taking money out of my own pocket, but I just couldn't stand the inefficiency of climbing all over that basement all day, looking for macaroni and cheese. Uh, so I was always getting in trouble for that. I wasn't afraid to try things. Um, 
and you know initially people uh who know better are are almost always going to think you're crazy for even trying but to me the pain of con just never trying anything was much greater than trying something and having it not work out so well and plenty of things did not work out so well yeah thanks for sharing a little bit about that background and just giving us an insight how how you process information and i think a lot of people listening to this um in their journey it a lot of times from what i've seen in teaching people the problem solving approaches and helping organizations in their improvement journey there are groups of people that already interact with the world in this way and they just don't have the terms or the tools necessarily to put their finger on it so like at that age of going down in the basement and organizing the space to be reflective of the so you have your pre-staging and then your your actual position of the products in the store so you, that's that's doing 5s and yeah. how many kids or uh, individuals, whether it's, you know, to keep their toys organized or to organize how they're studying to prepare for an exam. There's so many personalities out there that already function in this way that just need the tools and the terms. So a lot of people I'm meeting, it's like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like I've always thought this way and I just didn't really understand it. And I thought I was alone. And then they were like, oh my gosh, like there's other people who think this way too. And it becomes a total nerd fest. And I, I've always been the person who got in trouble the same way you did mm. in which I, I wanted to experiment and I tried, I wanted to make things as efficient and effective as possible in some situations that got me in trouble, but I just had this curiosity. And I think there's a lot of people who are curious that um, take that curiosity and bury it though, instead of presenting it and asking questions, because sometimes, you know, in asking questions or challenging the status quo, there's a risk there. And I'm just trying to make it safe. And I think you're doing the same thing, make it safe for people to share their voices about the ideas they have to bring about improvement, not, not just for the person who's performing that role or in that is in that operating capacity, but for the customer to improve in order to better serve someone else. So gratifying and it's totally addicting. Like you create one small instant of success and it becomes contagious. People who maybe were resistant to it see those results and become curious about it themselves. And I can, I've seen it pollinate and spread and it's super cool to watch unfold. And I think in this episode, we're going to get to talk about that wildfire spreading and, and it taking and elevating everyone in the organization, allowing everyone to kind of share their passions, to contribute their ideas, and to just help an organization reach new levels as a result. So I think this episode is going to be a lot of fun because of that. Yeah, so much of what you said is, uh, just resonates with me. The uh, transformative uh, event in my career uh, in in my civilian career in quality uh, came when I was working for GE and we, GE has a practice there that's known as workout. It's when you get everybody together and you work on a common problem. It's very intense. Uh, but the idea is to get everyone who can help you solve a problem uh, all on at the same time, armed with all the information you can get and make a decision quickly. Uh, so we were having a workout. We were, at the time we were producing uh, what was the first multi-slice CT scanner? 
at GE Medical Systems, now GE Healthcare. We're having trouble getting enough of these out the door and at just under $2 million a pop, we had all the incentive in the world to produce as many as we could. So we got called in on a Saturday uh, by the plant manager. Uh, this was a union shop and there was always a little bit of tension between uh, the folks you know, the non-union salaried folks and the union folks on the floor. And we didn't really get to work very often with them. So they brought in all the support functions I was in sourcing. Uh, we had folks from service. We had folks on the engineering side, all come in to the floor, working together to figure out how to produce more of these scanners. And at the end of this session, you always do a, a, a debrief at the end and say, hey, what did you think of the experience? What could we do better next time? And uh, one of the folks on the floor, one of the assemblers said, you know something, I've worked for this company 25 years, and this is the first time you've realized that when you pay for my hands, you pay for my brain. And it pulled, it pulled all of us up short because he was absolutely right. Uh, GE prides itself on uh, being a Six Sigma shop, on embracing lean, um, but you realize how far you are from that reality when you step back and say, shoot, this is really the first time we've asked the person who actually makes this thing um, what we can do to make it easier to make. And that it, it was an indictment of all of us. Um, but that stuck with me ever since. I named my consulting company Engage uh, as a reminder that no process improvement sticks unless you engage people's minds and hearts as well as their hands to make it happen. Yeah, I think GE is a centerpiece. They've done so much for the change um, and change management, I guess, is where it started. And it's now, I think the change management sciences, the journey of it is super interesting. So people listening to this, like Google the history of change management. So how it came about and how management used it originally was this idea of creating a burning platform and just causing immense pressure for people to change. You know, that we've quickly learned that was not how to go about making changes go around and lighting fire <laughs> people's butts. And then, you know, so you went from this kind of um, somewhat manipulative, like, use of change management to more of an inclusive approach. So GE in change management, they are a big player and I, that's where I got my change management training was through GE's uh, healthcare consulting services. So I, I heard that story before. I remember that quote. And the other part of the of GE's was they ha they would always say that change happens by the people, not to the people. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. So you know they were big and and really I think defined the tools and the techniques that people could use to manage change. And now change management I've seen is evolving to more change leadership, which is instead of this transactional approach of you apply change management to this one project in order to make that one project a success, now change leadership is a one-to-many type relationship of, no, this is how the organization needs to act and behave and think all the time to have a constant state of change readiness. So GE has been involved in the the, the roots of change management, and they're still involved to this day. And there's tons of thought leaders 
who are taking it and helping it to ever evolve. And I think that's what's so cool about the improvement sciences is even as you and I talk about it today, it'll be different tomorrow because it's constantly evolving in order to address whatever opportunities exist in front of us. And we collect our lessons learned and we celebrate our successes, but no one ever stands there and says, okay, we've done it all. Everyone in this world, in this space is always trying to figure, well, what's next and how do we keep this thing going? So just kind of hearing your story about GE, you were at at that point super, super early. Not very many people were doing anything other than walking around and telling people what to do and micromanaging <laughs> organization to get results. And GE was like, well, no, no, there's a totally different way we can go about doing it. And you would think, so that was 25 years ago, you would yeah. think this way of thinking and leading would be pretty well saturated mm. Every organization would function in that way. And I find that it's not. There are still organizations that would completely benefit from engaging the hearts and the minds of everyone in their organization that don't and uh, aren't growing as a result of it. And it's so, I don't know, it's like a forehead slap. Like, it's so easy. Just go around and, and engage the people who do the work every day and listen to them and empower them to act on their ideas and clear the way. Like, oh, but it's not, it's not easy because it's a cultural thing. Yeah. You know, I talk in the book about why Toyota, anyone who's dealt with Toyota is often surprised with how open they are about the Toyota production system and how they use it. But they can afford to be that open because they know that the first step of really taking advantage of it is to do what W. Edwards Deming said, drive fear out of the workplace. If people think that by improving their process, they're taking their or someone else's job away, they don't do it. So the first step is you have to assure them you're not going to be let go from making us better. And yet so few companies are willing to do that, to make that ironclad guarantee. But Toyota knows you'll never get off the first step. And so it's fine to you know implement Kanban. It's fine to uh, have a bunch of um, Kaizen events where you're supposedly getting together to make little improvements. But so you will never have the hearts and minds of the person as long as they feel like if I do make this change, my best friend on that line is going to go home and never come back. So it's a cultural thing. GE found this with regard to the Six Sigma implementation was um, Six Sigma has some prerequisites in order for it to be successful. It's a very technically driven methodology. So people have to make data make decisions based on data. It can't be a place where you make decisions based on your gut. And if someone brings you a number that you don't like, you ignore the number and go with your gut. It can't be a place where uh, if you come to the table with facts and data and can prove your point, but I come to the table and I just happen to be higher in the organization than you, I win. That's not how it works. When, with regard to change, how you perceive change is a big part of it. You've said a couple of times here, small incremental changes, frequent changes, changes made at the lowest level possible in the organization. All these things are what we classically call the fertile ground for quality improvement. But in a lot of organizations, that's not the case. Their culture is no change. Do the same thing day in and day out and never change it. And if it does change, it's gonna come from on high. Uh, or it's gonna be because a regulator says we've got to fundamentally change. So in my career, uh, 
on the one hand, I advise anyone getting into quality to follow a really simple guideline for their career. Go where the biggest, most complicated problem is. Because if you're a problem junkie, if you like to solve big, complicated things, you're going to learn the most and have the most impact by always running into the building that the smoke is pouring out of. It's a very unnatural thing. Most people prefer a little more comfortable life and stay away from those things. And they're known as sane people. But for quality people, we, we love that. We love the smell of smoke. We love to strap on the oxygen tank and the mask and get in there and, and do something. Uh, so in my career, in, when I was at GE at a time when in addition to the cultural change you were talking about, they also were going through outsourcing. And so we were just starting to figure out uh, how, to, uh, how to get goods and services that weren't right outside our door. So that was a big transition for us. Um, I went to uh, Bank of America and I was there for 10 years. And right in the middle of my 10 years, we had the financial crisis. And that was an enormous change for us. I started out the first half of my career doing quality, doing Six Sigma in a transactional environment, which was new. And then the back half of my career was figuring out how to put controls in place so that we could safely do what we do without the regulators sending us to jail. Fundamentally different business by that point. But again, when you, you know, you march to the sound of the guns, uh, that's, that's what happens. I landed in a a major supply chain distributor at a time when it was getting absolutely crushed in the market because the manufacturers were self-distributing and Amazon was looking to get into that space. So e-commerce was starting to take uh, market share from them as well. Uh, but the good thing is, is in all those companies, in all those improvement efforts, in all those different cultures, I didn't leave empty-handed crawling from the wreckage of various failures on it, uh, it gives you good insight into what's likely to work and what's not, and into the primacy of culture. In the book, I define culture as the manner by which an organization's values are communicated, understood, and lived. Um, it is upstream of process because culture has an influence on behavior that a process uh, a work instruction, a procedure, even a policy is not going to have. Culture is what people do and why. And it's very influenced uh, from the leadership. It can only really emanate from the leadership, what they tolerate and what they don't tolerate. And so you'll see strong companies out there that have been made in the mold of their founder. Amazon's customer service focus comes because Jeff Bezos was fulfilling those orders in the early days of Amazon. And they've kept it because he enforces it. Uh, GE was always a by the numbers company, at least from the days of Jack Welch, because Jack was all about the numbers. So if you came to GE with an opinion that wasn't based on facts or data, you were, you were likely to get laughed out of the room. Uh, IBM, uh, before Lou Gerstner got there, uh, everything was power, the equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation on these manual overhead slides. And the biggest revolution that Lou Gerstner had in taking over that company was the day he came into a meeting and they tried to put a slide up and he turned the projector off. And that ripple went through the entire organization because it ran so counter to their culture. 
So you talked a little bit earlier about the strength of culture and how that can, you know, if you ignore it, that you can really get yourself into a bind. Um, so in the book, we talk about how to diagnose a company's culture and pick a quality improvement methodology, which will go with the grain of that culture. I talk about three major strategies in the book. That's what we call the conform strategy. You have a really strong culture. You're trying to get something done. The burn, maybe the burning platform isn't catastrophic. We just want to improve our odds for success. What do we do? We take a look at how that culture likes to operate and we tailor our approach to suit that. So if you've got a company where we're not really comfortable with the people on the floor calling the shots, then you know, if I go out there and say, well, Steve in packing and shipping wants to do this, it's not likely to work. I've got to get, I've got to take advantage of the hierarchical structure of that company and get whoever is over that area to embrace what we're trying to do if we're going to be successful. Um, so in the book, we kind of break it down into these dimensions, uh, and for quality improvement, uh, it's really the answer to two questions. How do you make decisions and how do you view change? If we can break those down a little bit further, we talk about who gets to make the decisions, what's considered, you know, to be the authoritative decision maker, the tiebreaker in decisions. Is it your credibility? Is it the position you hold within the organization? We talk about what information is decisive for making that decision. Is it facts and data or is it gut? More great quality initiatives have been killed because somebody had something that didn't agree with them at lunch. And at the worst time in the meeting, you saw it on their face. They grimaced with indigestion. And then bam, that initiative is dead forever because everyone's reading the tea leaves and that person was decision-making. When it comes to change, we talk about the magnitude, the pace uh, of change. How big a change can we make? How frequently can we make it? And then where does that change come from? Does it come bottoms up or does it come top down? Does it come from inside or outside the organization? But just six dimensions can determine how fertile a ground a company is for process improvement. And as we start playing with the interactions between those, we can even figure out what the best process improvement methodology is for success in that culture as it's actually being lived. We're going to get really nerdy about those dimensions, but before we jump into those things, because you and I talked about this, that those dimensions, they're somewhat on a, a scale and they work collectively together, but they also can respond and be moved by tar targeted efforts on each individual element. So if you're, you know, assessing a situation, you could take these dimensions and you can kind of evaluate where are we in, in regards to this and then deploy a specific influence strategy to move that one thing. So we're going to get into that, but there were two things you said that I think are really important that I want to just revisit is for improvement nerds, um, you will enjoy your work most in trying to solve the big and important problems that need to be solved. Don't stand around and expect that other people have the ability to or the courage to take on those big, hairy, and scary efforts and initiatives because not everyone thinks the way you do. 
So if, if you're listening to these episodes and you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, everything they're saying resonates with me and I don't have the training, so I'm not qualified, stop there. You are t- having the curiosity is qualification number one, in my opinion. The, the tools of improvement are so teachable. The curiosity and the drive to make things better and to have courage and to be totally calm when everything is burning down around you, that is not teachable. So if you're one of those people who like to make change and can be steadfast when there is chaos, organizations need you to rise as a leader. And I think improvement experts are really good leaders in organizations because of that curiosity and that courageous way they lead when things are uncertain. And I think it's the, that's good role modeling, and we need improvement experts to, to be celebrated because of that thing. Because when things are hard and challenging, your tendency is to want to just go around and tell people what to do instead of stay there and say, I know this is scary, but we need everyone to stay where we are right now because there's growth and there's opportunity here. Improvement experts equate problems with opportunities, right? Everyone else avoids problems, but improvement nerds are like, I want the biggest problems because I know what exists beyond those things. So to have a very fulfilling career as an improvement expert or to get into this space, go around and look for big problems that need to be solved and be the one that says, you can trust me to take this to, to step into that uncertainty and to figure it out and to not figure it out through my ideas, but to figure out through leading others to trust themselves and to trust their own ideas. And I think that's the next piece. You didn't say it, but I know it's in your head because not only do you have big problems in the form of projects that have to happen, but sometimes you have big problems in the form of a person and a naysayer or a resistor. And when you and I, we talked earlier, we are saying like, oh man, some improvement experts don't want those naysayers on their team. And I, you and I said, no, give us the, the, the most, you know, pit bull, grab onto it and hold on to it type of person. We need naysayers because as you work with those individuals, you realize they're resisting not because they don't want change. It's because they um, have seen this so many times that they've just kind of lost hope. And all when it comes yeah. to with those people, all you got to do is put them in the spot to where they can be hopeful again. And they will, it's like a 180 degree change, right? They go from naysaying to being the biggest cheerleader. So I think two things for improvement experts and improvement nerds is go after the biggest problems and to work with those people that you don't think um, really want to see it succeed because really deep down they do. They may be perceived as a naysayer, but they're totally, uh, it, they're, they're just waiting to be invited back and to feel that hope again and has a change agent you can do that for them and that's to me just as fulfilling of having a successful project is to see people love their jobs again tom so many so many great points of wisdom in there i think the phrase is that um a cynic is just a frustrated idealist so when i gave you the example of how we turned around a fuels flight made the best in the air force we had two people who were dead set opposed to it uh, now, don't get me wrong, the people who were flat out opposed to it and were not movable, uh, we, we got rid of them. And that's what set the stage for a lot of the improvement. They were not going to fit. They couldn't, 
uh, they didn't align with the culture at all and could only undermine it. Uh, but we had other people who were pushing back because they cared about it. And I used to, it was funny, uh, I, I, I used to have people pull me aside and say, why do you put up with this? Because we're in the meeting and it's, it's a military environment. Um, it's a very professional, respectful environment. Uh, but I was, I was willing to let them push the line on that because as I, as I told people who said that was, I need to know what they're thinking. They're influential within the flight. Uh, they have people who listen to them, who look up to them for guidance. And the second I shut them down, they'll never tell me when I'm about to step on a landmine. So I would just as soon be a little bit uncomfortable in a meeting than be blindsided by something blowing up on the base. Uh, and that was just the kind of mentality you had to have. So if you're willing to take a little discomfort to learn something, it works. One of them, very a young troop, he was always um, complaining about how these changes were impacting the junior uh, enlisted folks. And so we said, you're absolutely right. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to form a council and you're going to run the council and you're going to represent the council in our staff meetings. So you can be the voice of those folks. The NCOs, the more senior people didn't really like it, but it was extremely useful because then when they went back to their quarters at night and talked about this stuff, um, it, it, it just helped get the message out. In addition, uh, he was able to intervene when they were being unreasonable and, and call on that. So he could see what we were doing and why and understand it. Uh, he was able to filter out some of the noise and it helped us all work so much better together. But that curiosity and that courage that you referred to, that's really the key. Uh, whenever I was hiring engineers, uh, one of the things we would do is we go out, actually, we wouldn't do it in a conference room at headquarters, we'd go out to an actual distribution center. And we'd walk around the floor and not give them too much guidance, just say, observe what you see and then come back and tell me what you think the biggest problem in this facility is. And the folks that we didn't go with were the ones who said, boy, well, I really need to talk to a lot of people and I need to um, gather a lot of data and I need to, they were afraid to make an opinion, you know, state an opinion based on limited information. And we just couldn't have that. The winning candidates were the ones who were curious enough to wonder why things were being done. They would almost always go ask people on their own while we were walking around. Hey, why do you do that? Um, they had that innate curiosity and that's really what we were looking for. Because to your point, you can train people up on skills, but you can't do anything with people who aren't curious. I had an engineer, we, were, we had a room full of Six Sigma books and references and everything. We were doing an engagement in, in one warehouse. Uh, I was remote on the road. Uh, we needed to know if a change we had made was really a significant change. And so I just asked him, hey, can you just do a quick two sample t-test for me on that? Let me know if it's different. Um, and well, I don't know how to do that. Okay. You're sitting in a room full of references. I told you what the test was. Look it up, do it, put it in Excel and, and figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we knew it was going to be a challenge because he just, he didn't have that curiosity. He wasn't engaged in the job enough to wonder, how do I prove that a change we've just started to implement 
is likely to really move the needle, which is what that particular application did. If you don't have that, boy, you are, you are not really cut out for the work we do. You have to, I used to ask people as part of hiring, tell me about a problem you had where you woke up at 2 a.m. with a solution. Because that to me is what separates quality folks. We, will, we can't even sleep without thinking about a solution. And sometimes it's just magic. You wake up and you go, I got it. I finally got it. You have those eureka moments. You know, uh, Thomas Edison, who founded G, he tried thousands of times to make the incandescent light bulb, thousands of times, failure after failure after failure. Nobody knew if it could be done, but he still tried. I'm going to give it another shot. Maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that. That innate curiosity gave birth to that company and so many more across the fruited plain here. We, if you don't have that, uh, it's just a real handicap uh, in our space. We are not the kind of people, by and large, who you put in charge to move things from an inbox to an outbox, day in and day out. It just doesn't resonate with us. Now, if you want somebody to figure out how that inbox outbox process should work, you can't stop us from doing it. So I would say to our listeners, boy, if you're someone and you feel like, man, I'm just too low in the organization, I'm new to this, uh, I've never done this before, bear in mind, everybody else in that organization has probably gotten their position because they're doing the same old thing they did before. And they have a Rolodex in their head that says, when you see this, do that. And so every problem that comes up, they're flipping that Rolodex. That's probably dating myself. Uh, Rolodex is ancient technology, right? Uh, but what we can do, our trick that nobody else can do, is you can give us a problem that nobody's ever seen before, and we'll fix it. I used to give the definition of a Six Sigma black belt as somebody you could throw out of an airplane over a jungle, and they'd come, and two weeks later you come back. And he's got a ream of process maps and he's got product flowing because we're great at just figuring out difficult, complex things step-by-step step in a way everybody can follow along and get things done. So take heart, have courage, have, keep that curiosity. Don't ever let anybody tell you, you can't ask a question, even if they give you a heck for doing it. Don't be the person who asks the, the people at the town hall, uh, what keeps you up at night? Do a little thinking and figure out and then fix it before it even keeps them up at night. Mm -hmm. Don't ask them, how do I get your job? Keep working on the most difficult problems you find and they will find you for that job. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for elaborating on that. And man, I've had uh, quite the, the career and it was all by kind of looking for where the biggest opportunities existed. So young in my career, I would, I think I had a level of naivety. Like I didn't, and I think a lot of people who are young, young in the career, they have certain flexibility to take risks that maybe someone who's further along in their career doesn't. So I think that helped me a little bit, but for big pro problems that I had no idea what they were or even how to take that first step, I would still raise my hand and you know, the first time I did it, it was pretty scary. And then the next time I did it, it was a little less scary. 
And then it just got less and less and less and less and scary. And it eventually started to get really exciting. And man, because, because I just said yes when I wanted to say no that one time, it put things in motion that have added up now to give me a phenomenally fulfilling career. And when I work and do projects, I'm trying not to make that project a success, but I'm trying to encourage everyone on that project team that it's a lot more fun to say yes than it is to say no. Mm-hmm. And if we can become more of that and to inspire a culture around that mindset, good things are going to happen and that this organization is going to achieve really profound things, not just now, but in an ongoing way. I think in Simon Sinek's book, he, he calls it the difference between playing a finite game and an infinite game. And cultures and organizations aren't meant to just solve one problem. They're meant to be dynamic and to evolve and to not just serve the needs they see today, but to anticipate future needs and to continue to grow and to fill those spaces so that they're always relevant. And there's so many organizations that didn't see the future needs and Mm. were totally comfortable just trying to be the king of the space they currently had. And they missed the boats and they weren't saying yes. They were just, no, that we can avoid that or we don't need to pursue that. Well, have a healthy dose of risk acceptance and risk tolerance to try it. Just try it. Try it once. And yeah, that first time you try it, it's going to be really hard. And you know what? You are going to maybe fail. You probably will fail, but you're going to learn a bunch. And you're going to get a little bit more courage to say yes the next time when you're facing uncertainty. And to me, like, that's what makes organizations really great is they're risk accepting because they know on the other side of risk is the learning that they need to take the next step. And the next step, almost to like what you were saying with Edison, is the ball, every time he failed with the bulb, he learned what not to do. And all those what nots eventually added up. Value. Exact solution that needed to exist in order to create that light bulb. And I think it's probably easier said than done, but if organizations inspired cultures to kind of move forward in that way, those organizations would always be in demand for, for workforce members because they want to work for organizations that think that way and for customers because they want to be um, served by an organization that's always trying to rise to satisfy them and, and to create products or services to fulfill their needs today and tomorrow. Well, can you imagine Edison going before a board asking for a budget? <laughs> uh, I have no idea how many failures. I need you to budget me for at least 10,000. 10,000. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work, uh, but I'm, I'm going to spend an awful lot of labor at it and burn through a lot of material and uh, please cut me the check. It's, it's just unimaginable today, right? Right. You know, it's funny that everybody says, from a cultural standpoint, one of the most common values you'll see is innovation. We value innovation. And when you talk to the people responsible for innovation at those companies and you ask them, Do, does this company really support innovation? What do you think the answer is? Nobody, nobody, when it comes down to it, innovation always involves change, risk and change, and nobody ever wants to sign up for it. So it's, it's so hard. 
Um, I, I have a good friend, former colleague, who is uh, one of the most innovative people I know. And he's had to carve out an interesting career for himself. He said, you know something, I've never been hired where they actually had a job for me. Mm-hmm. He said what they, what they had to do was create a job because they knew that good things would happen and potentially hugely great things. Um, but the structure just wasn't there. Uh, you know, R&D, there's, there's always a tension between R&D and manufacturing and everything. But when it comes to true innovation, there, nobody knows what that structure should be. They, they picture it as being a bunch of guys sitting around in togas, you know, in a break room stuff with snacks, philosophizing all day. And then maybe, you know, one of the crazy post-its they throw on the wall will become something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't realize the hard work and the repeated testing that, that goes into it. Quality practitioners know because we're familiar with designed experiments. So we realize, no, I got to work through all the permutations of this thing to really figure out what drives it. What are the main effects? What are the interactions? How does that impact things? Maybe I got to build a data model and understand, uh, be able to project that in the future with a Monte Carlo simulation. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of not very glamorous work. And that's why there are so few people signing up for it. But I'll tell you, once he had the light bulb, once they knew how to produce it, there was no shortage of people going to GE going, hey, I'll run your light bulb plant. That was the easy part. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the things that sets us out uh, in the quality community is that we're willing to take that stab. We're willing to fail. Uh, there's another good side to it is when we succeed, you rarely see us taking credit for the success. Doesn't matter that we may have done 98% of the sweat equity that went into it. Um, we want it to succeed so badly that we learn the Jedi mind trick of convincing people that it was their idea. We give it away. Uh, and I think that's a lot of when you see the stories of how some companies were founded, there was almost always a genius behind it who came up with a solution, who had the passion, who persevered, who got it out there. And then he was always partnered up with the business guy who he didn't want to do deal with that, that aspect of things. Uh, and then he almost always got, you know, got taken to the cleaners by the business guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, and exiled from the company. You know, it's been the story of so many companies foundings. Um, but is, you know, very few of those people are as deeply as unhappy as you might think, because for them, the importance was the innovation. It was bettering society. Uh, through this. It's what Taguchi always talked about in terms of forget about spec limits, minimize the negative impact of society of defects. And the more you contribute to society in that way, the more satisfied you will be. You will have made a real impact. Who cares what the paper says? You'll made a real impact on the people around you. And that's why you find often uh, when you scratch the surface, you find someone who's really good at doing process improvement you'll find that contrary to the perception of them as nerds, technical geeks, et cetera, they're great in the locker room. People enjoy working with them. It's a survival skill because we're always being a pain in the butt and saying, you know, we could be better. We need to change this. Yeah, I know this is a great job and everything else, but hey, what's happening out there in the world that's going to make that not true tomorrow? We need to be ahead of that. We are, we can be the most difficult people to be around sometimes 
but we've had to learn how to inspire others in order to get things done. And that is a tremendous force multiplier in business. And I think through that, you accentuate a culture that's in place. You see the best of it and play to that culture's strengths and elevate it and take it from where it is to where it can be. And um, that, that causes a profound impact because everyone who works in that organization then benefits. So if a culture is playing small and you see it has this potential to do so much more and you uh, accentuate that and you bring out that best of it, that best goes home with everyone every day and they then, it's like a force multiplier. Those individuals are more fulfilled at work and that spills over into every other aspect of that person's life and has a change agent, an improvement expert, you may never see that, but know that it's playing out. By leading that one team and helping that one team be successful, even if it was just eight people on that team, those eight people went home with a different attitude that day than they would have had you not led them through that change initiative. And they're going to show up different at work and in, in whatever role they might play. And just that difference in attitude, the change in their behaviors, now people are watching those people and they begin to emulate those behaviors. And it's kind of like this ripple effect of one change can impact more than just the immediate stakeholders around it. But it, there's many layers beyond it that experience that, that impact. And for me, I've just been very fortunate that I was given the space to kind of shake the boat a little bit. And... I was also blessed that when I was working with these teams that I would get feedback from them that, okay, the project was a success. Thank you. Thank you for making that project success, but mostly thank you for making me feel like I could be successful again. And from there, then once you create the success for them and celebrate them. So I think what you were saying is a, a good change agent, a good improvement expert is someone who takes more than their fair share of the blame and less than the less of the share Absolutely. of the success, right? And you it's all about that team and what you the momentum you can create through them that really gets this flywheel going in my opinion. And I think it it can take a culture and really magnify the best parts of a culture one person at a time, choosing to be an advocate or to bring a different attitude to whatever opportunities they might see. And to me, improvement and culture go hand in hand. And you can accentuate a culture and even completely redefine a culture by giving people the empowerment and the encouragement they need to take ownership of the work that they, we ask them to do day in and day out. And so I think, you know, you're talking about culture. You got to work with it and you got to try to accelerate it and just make even it better and stronger. Yeah, what a great point. We talked a a little bit earlier about three different strategies, right? So conforming to it is one. Uh, But again, the gains you get from it, you're you're basically going to be, you're going to get what the culture will allow you to get. Right. Um, You were talking a little bit about, boy, thank you for putting me back in the driver's seat again in my career, Uh, which is a just an enormous side benefit of the work we do. 
everybody else is chasing the illusion of control. You see it with the response to this pandemic and how folks, now that we have to work remotely, people who were dead set against it because they had to feel like they were driving the train. So, and the best way to do that was you sit 10 feet from me and I can see what you're doing at any time and I can pop out and redirect you and everything. They were chasing that illusion of control. In reality, how much influence did they really have over the work you were doing at any given minute? Probably as much as they were watching it, right? The Hawthorne effect in, uh, in essence. But what we do is we give them actual control. So when we do our process work, we're uncovering the levers necessary to produce good outcomes from that process. And we're proven to them, if you do this, you will get great quality products and services. But it's bigger than that because the culture is how the company itself is controlled. And so if we really want to empower people, if we really want to get the benefits of standard work throughout, the benefits of the right behaviors throughout the organization, you have to go to the culture. That, those are the critical X's for the company. And where the, those critical X's run counter to process, guess what? They're going to win. You can have a safety first policy all you want to. And as long as in order to get an order out, people are climbing on the top rack in your warehouse and straddling the beams, you don't have a safety culture. So it's so important to get to those drivers. And then if the culture isn't what it's desired, if we've communicated a culture, which is beautiful and it's up on the wall and it's in a lovely frame and it's got gold lettering on it in a nice uh, calligraphy. And yet whenever you call customer service, you get actual behavior, which runs completely counter to that. Then what's on the wall doesn't much matter. You may have communicated it, but it's not being lived you have to look at the actual behaviors and the reinforcement of it. And you got a choice. We can either reform the culture, which means we're gonna make you know, significant but not wholesale transformation of it. Um, and then you're gonna to have to fight one. The book I use uh, analogously as a guerrilla war to, with the current culture in order to you know, cement your reform. And boy, that is something that quality professionals in particular are pretty good at because we're used to dealing with resistance entrenched. We're used to having to figure out ways around it. And there is no greater enemy you can have in an organization than a frustrated quality person who knows they're right. Because they will stop at nothing to solve that particular problem of resistance to this change that needs to happen. Uh, so it, it, it comes very naturally to us to do that. And then you have cultural transformation, which is usually the last resort. Uh, McKinsey and Company is in the transformation business. They say 70% of transformations fail. I was part of a McKinsey transformation. It failed. So I can attest to the, the overall odds there. It's hugely difficult because it's like, uh, it's like grafting on another organ to the body in order to make this happen. Um, and it's usually only when companies are really at their last gasped last chance to turn things around that we do it but there's an there's an option to do that as well so if you're in a quality you're a quality professional you're in a space an industry maybe that hasn't been impacted by quality a good example would be e-commerce today with the pandemic e-commerce is booming but 
they're barely out of the startup stage for a lot of them. And they haven't really had a lot of process discipline in the past. So if you are a person in an e-commerce space, you may well find that the culture is not mature enough yet to do your best work. Mm -hmm. You're either cranking out process maps, trying to get people to understand, look, we need to have st some stability here in how we do things and we need to have a repeatable process. Um, and so you're going to be operating at a very low end of your skill set. Uh, or you're going to be in a situation where it is such chaos that people don't even understand why you're really there. And your primary role is to answer all the angry calls. You know, we put you in charge of quality so that we could say, uh, as a customer service rep, I'm going to put you on my quality director and they'll, uh, they'll help you out. Um, the way to get better at that is to reform the culture first. First, you have to build the leadership team's understanding of why process improvement is important and why we're never going to be able to scale, which is what every e-commerce business wants to do. We are never going to be able to scale like this. If this was a balloon we were inflating, uh, it would pop long before we got to the, the scale we wanted because it is pretty weak in spots. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to go in, diagnose your culture, understand what the desired culture is, uh, as you were noting on there, you know, we, we see around corners pretty well. So we can see how what we're doing today may be fine, but tomorrow it's not likely to because of all these outside things going on. That's what SWOT analysis is all about. So we can use that with regard to our culture to say, what are the behaviors that we engage in today, which are going to really be a problem tomorrow? One company I worked for, we used to say, our teammates would run through a brick wall for the customer, even if there was a door right there, <laughs> right? So getting people to start using the door, <laughs> even before they know that that need's going to be coming, that's value that we can bring. And so by taking a methodical approach to understanding the culture that we desire, the culture that's been communicated, how that's been understood, how that's been lived, that's key to improving our odds for success in an environment which often uh, is not very propitious for us. I think you've made an excellent case for culture as being a part of a key focus for improvement-minded individuals is you can't ignore it, you have to study it, you have to understand it, and you need to work with it and uh, expand what the culture has enabled you and the organization to do in tiny baby steps, right? Because you don't want to try to disrupt culture because it, it will push back hard. <laughs> but to be very calculated on how you're expanding what culture will allow you to do by always seeing the best in it and not really, you know, ever... Um, saying it is what it is and will never be any different. I that If you take that attitude, you, it won't be any different. But if you see, I think this culture has some good things here and it lets us do these things, let's, allow, let's play with it there and take and compound those wins that it will allow us to create right now to take those next steps. And I think that's why a lot of people see improvement as a journey. 
is you got to meet the organization where it's at and you got to harvest the fruit that's readily available but then you got to turn that page and you got to take that next step and i think knowing all those steps and being patient for each of those doors to open is another really important thing for improvement experts and organizations who are wanting to really embrace continuous improvement is that sometimes they want to go too far too fast, right? They're like, let's implement, you know, portfolio management. I want a collection of great project ideas and a robust funnel that's a valued at X million dollars. And I want, you know, every one of those projects to be chartered and an action plan on each of those projects. Like, okay, yes, that's important, but that's really mature and it's pretty far along in in a trans in a, an improvement journey. Like, if individuals listen to this, if you've not seen the Master Black Belt Lean Six Sigma Maturity Model, which includes five levels, you need to, because there is level one for a reason and there's level five for another reason. And organizations who want to rush it and say, I've, I want level five type activities occurring in my organization, but their culture really only allows level one activities to be going on, they're going to blow up, right? They're going to be trying to do too much too fast and it's way too sophisticated and no one can really embrace it because the culture doesn't receive it well. So to understand the organization's culture and say, here's where I think we can start. And by doing it this way, it's going to help us build the momentum we need to eventually get to that really sophisticated part of applying it in a more strategic capacity. It, doing improvement in an ad hoc fashion, a lot of people are like, oh, no, that's bad. No, if, you're, if your culture's never done improvement before, let people work whatever they want to work on. Give them the skills they need to problem solve because that lays the foundation to be doing more complex change and more targeted change later down the road. But if you just... Like, and we can, we can also, you know, we talk in the book about the importance of heroes to a culture. So if you want to change the culture, you got to change your heroes. And to your point, if you got someone out there who's showing they can be collaborative, they can really get done a root cause analysis, it doesn't matter the level of sophistication. That's a behavior to reward. Mm-hmm. And so praise them to high heaven as exemplifying that so that everybody sees this is the behavior of the new culture. Uh, we talk also about telling the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every great culture has a strong founding myth. If you remember HP, when Carly Fiorina took over the company, she kept referring to the garage, the garage garage that the founders built the first products in. You talk about Apple, everyone knows the story of Steve Jobs and the, and, uh, the iPod uh, and the iPhone. Uh, you talk about Microsoft and uh, Windows. Uh, all these companies have these great founding stories. And they tell them because it reinforces the values of the company. It reminds everybody, this is what we're about. Uh, And when you try and do something that doesn't really resonate with that and doesn't have that same impact, it doesn't do as well. It's funny because I was working at uh, Black & Decker uh, back in the day. And the president of Price Fister, one of the brands that we had, uh, was standing next to me when one of my colleagues was making a really passionate pitch for an ISO 9001 implementation. She did an outstanding job. She laid the case out beautifully. And I noticed that Ed was a little standoffish. Uh, and so I asked him, I said, what the, I said, what do you make of that? And uh, he was a Polish guy. He had a little bit of an accent, but he said something on there. We'll forget. He said, 
before you can have the tablets, you must have the religion. And it made, it crystallized it perfectly. The issue wasn't ISO. ISO does exactly what everyone knows it does. The issue was before you can embrace ISO, you must meet the prerequisites for it. You have to have standard work. You have to follow your guidelines. What good does it do to put procedures and work instructions out nobody follows? So the culture has to be there first. Hey, we're gonna do things this way. And if you don't do things this way, we're gonna have problems. And it has to be reinforced by your leadership. And until that happens, you don't have the religion you're not going to get the tablets. Mm-hmm. No sense spending money on those tablets. I think that's beautifully well said. And I think for people listening in, if they're not already working with leaders and encouraging them to serve as role models, consistently emulating these behaviors and helping to celebrate these behaviors of curiosity or team and collaborative work or whatever it might be, whatever your behaviors are that you know need to be readily present for you to be in a change, more change ready state. If, if people aren't coaching on those behaviors and they're simply just trying to do improvement, you're leaving the people behind, right? You, the, your first priority in any project is the people on that project, right? You need to teach those people not just the tools and the skills, but you got to change their thinking. I always say it's a tool set, skill set, mindset. Don't forget the, the way people think is another role in that you have has a belt or a change agent, whatever your title might be. Your role is to help people start to think this way and you know, do this day in, day out through their behaviors. And it'll come easy to some and it will be harder for others. But the best way you could teach that is to do it yourself. And um, eventually it'll catch on, right? Yeah, it's the power of habit, right? Once people have done it enough, then that becomes the the new culture. Yeah. And it gets reinforced. Uh, In the book, one of the things to talk about is Napoleon Bonaparte uh, used to have what he called his old guard. Uh, these were seasoned veteran troops. They were the elites. Uh, and he used them as almost like a fortress on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. They were the keepers of the culture that he was trying to sustain. And we need that in our companies. They're, they're there anyway. They're the people that everyone goes to when something new comes up and they want to know what to think about it. And they go park their coffee over by them and ask them what they think. So they're, they're a reality no matter how you slice it. Your best bet is to go buy them a donut and go talk to them before you implement anything. And the question I would always ask them is, okay, if this is a great idea, what can go wrong with it? How could I screw this up? And if they like you and they like the donut, they will tell you. And you're, you, would, you would better, if they, the first time they tell you, you'd better show that you applied what they told you because if you don't, they will never tell you anything again. Mm-hmm. But if you leverage that old guard, and importantly, that's why uh, Tom and I are so big, I think, on bringing some naysayers onto the team. If you can flip them to where the old guard is now pushing the new narrative, the new culture, you've won. All of their credibility now works for you rather than against you. If anyone grumbles about the change, 
Now they got to contend with the person who's got the most credibility out there on the team. So they become a barrier, a fortress for you. Uh, don't exclude them from it. Don't alienate them from it. Take advantage of their experience and their advice because they've been through this before. They have the scars to prove it. And as long as they have goodwill and are willing to share that with you, that's invaluable experience that can help make your effort a success. I think that's a great way to kind of bring this to a close is that when we talk about process improvement, we use the word process. And then one of, but one of the rules about process improvement is it's about people as well. Like it's your people, your process, your technology. So realize that your process really doesn't create your culture. Your people do. And if you want your culture to change, you have to change your people, not your processes. And you, and I'm not saying like, you know, turnover, turnover may happen. There's going to be some attrition as, as cultures evolve, right? And that's somewhat healthy because if that person didn't fit that culture, they probably weren't happy. Uh, so some attrition is okay. You don't want regrettable loss and you don't want aggressive cutting either in order to change a culture. But the people who are there who are best able to define culture as it exists today and position culture so that it can advance to its next potential is through people. And you as a change agent, you've got to have the tools to lead process improvement and you've got to have the tools to lead people. And both of those skills uh, are really important. And I can't, I can't say one's more important than the other, but if you don't try to improve through both the people and the processes and the culture, you're, you're just going to be stalemate. And I think everything you've talked about is don't forget the people side of change and the culture that those people create and represent, because if you don't focus there, that it's going to bite you and it's going to prevent good ideas from never going. Yeah. My last tip for you is the way to get to the hearts and minds of the leadership and to the old guard is through the purpose of the company. So if you're going to talk about changing a culture, it has to be because that culture is no longer helping the purpose of the company. Maybe the purpose of the company has changed. Uh, maybe it's just that the culture has eroded and some bad habits have gotten in. But if you want to be able to do anything with the culture, you have to look at it from that lens. Southwest Airline exists to be the lowest cost carrier on the routes that they service. That's a very powerful purpose for them. Anything that you do to change that culture has to at least be neutral with regard to that vision. It can't add cost to them. It can't make them a higher cost carrier on their routes. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. So keep in mind the purpose of the company, what it's doing. And if you can build a better mousetrap and if you're in quality, you know you can. Then get to that purpose better through a better culture and you're going to find that everything starts to go your way. Thank you so much for coming on the episode and talking about culture today and sharing your your ideas, your experiences, and for capturing those two things in a book, an artifact that I hope people will rally around and, and obtain for themselves and read and um, become a student of. Because I think a lot of the things you're saying, they if in the Master Black Belt book, The Body of Knowledge, or project management, the body of knowledge, or agile. I have so I've studied a lot of the technical side of change, 
in all those books, the, the, the pages, so 300 page books with pages, two or three pages that talk about culture or maybe 10 pages that talk about change. So your book is the story uh, about that. And I think individuals who really want to be a well-rounded belt or a change agent or whatever quality, however you want to call it, if you want to be more well-rounded, yes, learn the science, but also add other ideas to the way you think and lead. And I, I would strongly recommend, I have not even read it, but just hearing the experience you have and how you've used culture to create sustainable change, I'm going to say people need to read it. And I love books that talk about the things that I think are missing from the body of knowledge in your book. ASQ needs to read it and then insert it in whatever the next iteration is. <laughs> whenever you hear quality 4.0, quality 4.0 is almost all about culture. So I believe it's coming. Uh, if you want to be ahead of the curve for quality 4.0, pick up a copy of the book. I'm sure there's going to be some other great books coming out about the same topic because we're all seeing the same thing out there. Love that. And thank you, Tom, for the platform to, to share the passion around culture. Yes, thanks for nerding out with me today. Thank you. <laughs>